Welcome to Emerging Women's Grace and Fire podcast, where we explore ideas, practices, and life hacks for modern women leading change in the world. This is Chantal Purat, your host and founder of Emerging Women. Welcome. I recently learned a new word that I love, moonshot. It sounds so feminine, but with this deep undercurrent of disruption that intrigued me when I first heard it. Inspired by President Kennedy's massive efforts to put a man on the moon, a moonshot is a barely achievable initiative that demands extraordinary effort and teamwork to achieve. It's an initiative that definitely is not possible with, quote, business as usual. You have to completely transform the ways of working and collaboration and performance in order to make it happen. And what's the most exciting part? The widespread effects of a moonshot are often world-changing in a way that no one could have imagined. Kate Pramal and Lisa Goldman are wildly accomplished leaders who have many decades of moonshot experience between them. They've led, guided, and inspired companies from Apple to Match.com through successful moonshot launches and have brought that expertise to bear in their new book, The Moonshot Effect, Disrupting Business as Usual a step-by-step how-to for moonshot projects, and also just an indispensable guide to leadership in general. I had the pleasure of talking to Kate and Lisa to help us wrap our heads around this catalyzing topic. We covered the moonshot effect and its radical ability to galvanize people into action around a world-changing idea. The stages, timeline, and ripple effect of a moonshot. Two crucial practices of bold, outrageous visionaries. Tips for sourcing power from your body and language. And finally, the difference between being humble and being a courageous hero maker. Let's dive into this week's Grace and Fire conversation, Moonshot, with chronic game changers Kate Pramal and Lisa Goldman. Hello and welcome, Lisa and Kate. How are you? We're great, thank you. Good. We're doing very well. Thanks, Chantal. Great. I'm super excited to get into this work. I love the title and the concept that you have, The Moonshot Effect. And I'm thinking maybe we should just start with you explaining what you mean by a moonshot effect. Sure. Um, uh, This is Kate, and Lisa and I have worked together for years, and uh, one morning we were driving to meet each other for breakfast to discuss an upcoming board meeting. And on the way there, we were listening to National Public Radio, and there was an entire show dedicated to uh, President Kennedy and the Apollo 11 moonshot. And I, you know, I knew that story. We think we all know that story, but in listening to it, I really... Uh, got completely consumed by the magnitude of that entire effort and really the the impact it had on our country and on our the way we do business. And uh, it just so happened when I got out of the car, Lisa had been listening to the same story. So when we got into the restaurant to talk about our board meeting, we decided to forget about that, put that on the back burner, and we started talking about the implications of what we heard about the uh, Apollo 11 moonshot. And that was the, the, uh, the space program that put the first person on the moon, obviously. Um, and anyway, so what we discovered was that there were these parallels uh, in that massive initiative that involved 
400,000 people and five very large companies delivering huge space systems and, you know, launched the invention of numerous things, including soles for running shoes and pacemakers and Tang, which we laugh about. Uh, but anyway, that, that, that was just this enormous project. And in order to accomplish it, there were a number of things that had to happen, such as, you know, modern-day project management techniques that we use today in business, um, you know, high levels of leadership and communication. Um, so we, we just really took a look at that and, and drew parallels in our own work with executives and companies. And in fact, we counted the number of moonshots we've been involved in, and we've had the privilege to be involved in 18. I mean, most people, if they're lucky, are involved in one or two. And so that was uh, how we started to focus in on this idea of a moonshot as a uh, barely achievable uh, initiative that requires the, the extraordinary uh, effort and teamwork from people to accomplish it. And it can't possibly done, be done with business as usual. You actually have to completely transform ways of working and collaborating and performance in order to make it happen. The reason we have loved being involved in Moonshots is it makes heroes out of people. And we're really interested in that. We're interested in the kind of DNA, uh, like the source code of projects that, that has people gravitate towards being involved and uh, produces, um, you know, people who make heroic efforts and inspire heroism in other people. Mm. Very nice. I have a question about your histories. You said you had 18 moonshots collectively. Give us an idea, uh, either one or two examples of that. Yeah, that, so a really great example uh, is Nokia, the cell phone company, which uh, is not too much on anyone's radar because it's more of an international presence. Uh, but a number of years ago, they, they were the number one cell phone provider in the world. And uh, someone that Kate had worked with at Handspring named Lee Epting went to go work there. And she was brought in. Nokia is um, uh, headquartered in uh, Finland. They're a Finnish company, and their uh, U.S. headquarters was in New York. So neither of those are hotbeds of what we might call technology or Silicon Valley isms uh, back then. And they wanted to inject Silicon Valley into their more sort of staid, laid, you know, predictable uh, technology and, and company. So they brought in Lee as this sort of, she's going to be the source of change, source of all greatness. And she had been there about 30 days and made a presentation to her boss who came in from Finland and was showing the product roadmap and all the great things they were going to do. And at the end of the meeting, he said to her, but what's the big idea? So for him, what was missing was the reason they had brought her there. So she realized that she, something had to happen. She had to step up her game. So Lee being Lee and being the brilliant um, master of change that she is, she uh, really kind of ripped the Band-Aid off of her own thinking and instantly 
called five of the best people that she knew who were uh, kind of outrageous thinkers. Some were the get things done people. Some were the ones who knew everything about the technology. And she picked five outstanding people, called them on the phone, and said, come to my office immediately. She was senior enough that they were uh, frightened and scared and had no idea what was going to happen. And uh, I remember standing in her office with her. You could hear them running down the hall. And they all ran into her office, and she said, great, shut the door. I'm now absolving you from everything that you're doing currently on your job, and you have only one job, and that is to create a big idea, something that we now call a moonshot. And that, that was that. She launched that moonshot, and within 35 days, they had come up with uh, an idea, which they eventually called MOSH, M-O-S-H, a product, um, an idea for how to use cell phones and a technology for installing them, that the following year earned them one of the top 20 uh, innovative companies by Inc. Magazine, which for Nokia, that, you know, that was unheard of, that uh, uh, kind of stayed company would get something like that. So, uh, so that's, that's one of the kind of groundbreaking uh, moonshot stories that we have. The, the thing that's really interesting and why it classifies itself as a moonshot for us is we talked to Lee re recently, and in the six years since this project has uh, come to market, the five people that she chose who came running down the hall that day to her office have all gone on to do moonshots at other companies, Samsung and uh, Sony and uh, companies like that. They have made heroes of all the people who've worked with them the effect on people's careers and their ability to engage, enroll, and create massive satisfaction for those around them has really been the effect of that moonshot. Cool. You made a point there about, like, the time. 35 days is not a long time. And in the book, you actually are very clear about assigning a timeline to the moonshot. So is that timeline applied to coming up with the moonshot or delivering the moonshot? Yeah, because that's we, fast. Yeah, we're big believers in compressed timelines to create sort of the crucible in which things shift and change in the most dramatic way. So our general formula, and obviously it varies, but our general formula is you come up with the big ideas or a couple of them that you pitch in the first one to two weeks. So you, you kind of do a sprint in a week to figure out what are the three big ideas that we could pursue. And then you spend the next, um, you know, up to 45 days building a business case for it. And that often includes validating it with customers. And in Lee's case, they pulled in a, country, a bunch of college students from NYU to test the concept. They did a concept, a proof of concept test. They videotaped it, and they used that in the business case pitch to get the funding for the project. So the first phase is come up with three to five ideas, and then zero in on one and build a business case. Get it funded, and that all happens within 45 days. And then 
within six to nine months launch it. So that's the formula, and, and we've seen it work over and over again. Right. Now, I'm going to pause here because one of the things that you just mentioned has been a pretty big roadblock for women entrepreneurs. I think it's less of a roadblock if you're a director or a VP within a, you know, a big corporation that has resources. Getting it funded is not such a big deal. But for an entrepreneur, and especially if you're a, you know, a female entrepreneur, the, even though the statistics are getting better, they're not so great. So getting funded in 45 days, that's a tall order. Well, let me give you another example of, a, of an individual um, who, who's, who's taken this formula and used it in a different way, because I think it'll be relevant. So Lisa Christina is a humanitarian photographer. Um, she and I met because she, she, she's documented indigenous people in 60 countries on five continents, and she was at a place where she was imagining having more impact with her work, and that means having her work represent uh, some uh, cause that she cares deeply about. And the cause that she chose is human slavery. And so she and I sat together and she crafted this intention to begin to find a partnership or find some way to create a body of work that would impact this issue of human slavery. And as a result of that intention, it may not have been 45 days, but it was very close. I think it was in, within, within um, three months. She found herself at the Vancouver Peace Summit and had met an organization called Free the Slaves and very rapidly formed an alliance to develop and launch um, this uh, exhibition, create the body of work, uh, launch a book. Uh, Desmond Tutu did the foreword to the book. And so it was this, and this uh, initiation of the concept and really codifying what it would look like in its most um, glorious form when it was out in the world that allowed her to create the intention and have the uh, opportunities line up and be on the lookout for them so that within that 45 days to three months she could launch it. So it's not necessarily that you have to go raise you know, $10 million or $5 million or a million dollars to do this, you can actually do it by forming partnerships and alliances. The point is you need to galvanize resources to be able to initiate it and make it happen, however that looks. Right. The, the other point to that, I think, um, which is interesting, and it works for both examples, is that not only do you have to have a compressed timeline, it looks, you know, according to this formula, that it needs to appeal to some kind of problem that we're solving for humanity. Yeah, we, we definitely have seen that the moonshots that are most successful have a very strong human element. They appeal to human, um, human desires and needs. I will tell you that um, they don't all have to have a philanthropic focus because the byproduct of a moonshot is an effect of, of coalescing and galvanizing humans to work in tandem together on something that is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And that act in and of itself is an act of good in the world. So our right. view is that that's part, of the, part and parcel of launching a moonshot is that you get the effect of getting people to, to form connective tissue and build long-term relationships, friendships, and collaborations that have tremendous value and bring forth many, many other benefits. 
-hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the other piece of this is that, you know, it has sort of a ripple effect Again, you kind of alluded to that just now in terms of having everybody collectively working at a fast pace, something that is creating a lot of energy and juice on the team and is directed and and essentially comes from the team um, in terms of the idea. And yet you have a whole chapter here on expecting the unexpected. So on one hand, we're going towards a defined goal. We're staying focused. On the other hand, this is opening up to a lot of effects of those efforts that were, you know, we can't foresee. Tell us more about what you mean here, and is this a good thing or something we should guard against? Uh, that's that's really a great question. Uh, when you started asking the question, the instance that came to mind for me, uh, and the reason it's uh, top of mind for me is. Uh, will become clear when I tell you the story. It has to do with uh, triathlons and Ironman. Uh, I, I work with a consortium of small business owners in Japan, about 40 people who are uh, all either sole, solo practitioners or, uh, you know, maybe up to three or four people. So very, you know, small um, businesses, small numbers of people, but some are very, very successful. And, uh, and about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, the guy who was the head of this consortium said that he wanted to come up with something that was going to knit them together more strongly because they didn't work for each other, they were colleagues, but unless there was something kind of, unless there was more there there, there wasn't much reason for them to interact and he thought that there would be something available with the, their strong interaction that would uh, improve their, uh, you know, both their quality of life and their businesses if they, if they were interacting. So he came up with this idea, and that is that everybody, all of them, to a person, he challenged them to participate in a, in a triathlon. Now, some of these guys couldn't even swim. Uh-huh. So this was not like he had athletes on his hands and he was just going to point them in a different direction. These were business people. Uh, and so they, because somewhat because they're Japanese, they all said yes and then embarked on the, the journey to uh, train themselves. And that's when it became apparent that it, this was not going to happen not in the uh, stake-in-the-ground time frame that he had um, decided, which is the Honolulu Triathlon, which actually the third one that we've participated in was this past Sunday. So here's what happened. They decided that unless they do something different than figure out how to train and all train separately, they needed to train together and they needed to hire outside help. So they hired the trainer for the Japanese tri- uh, Olympic triathlete triathlon team to train them. They hired a fairly famous um, a swimmer coach in Japan to help them. And they made commitments for what to do with their time in training and training together. This started to impinge on their ability to meet with clients. And in fact, sometimes they had to change meeting with clients. So, 
what ensued was they started to tell their clients that they were participating in this. Fast forward to the first triathlon three, three years ago, not only did all 40 members of this consortium participate, about 10 of their clients did as well. So it so inspired the people who were connected with this and who heard about it mm-hmm. that they wanted to participate also. And um, it, uh, you know, it really had legs. Here's the answer to your question. All of them showed dramatic increases in revenue, even though they worked less and had to train more. Something happened by them telling their clients and exposing to the world this extraordinary commitment that inspired people to to work with them and be connected with them. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. That's cool. You have another section. The second section of your book is around bold leadership. And one of the chapters in that is all on visioning for the future. And I think this is a key part of what you're talking about here. Here I am, like, completely not an athlete, and yet somehow I can actually see this happen and keep moving towards it using the the whole moonshot out there as inspiration and to sort of suck people into your inspiration web um, continues to propel you forward. But how do you actually stay in that vision when you're in the middle of, you know, day-to-day getting, you know, all the execution? And I know, Kate, you have worked a lot in this realm. So maybe you could help us understand, A, the power of having vision as a lead part of your leadership strategy, and two, what are some of the techniques to stay on board with that vision throughout the detail and the execution part? That's such a great question, Chantel. And by the way, this is one of the things we hear very, very often from the leaders we work with because their concern is, I don't want to launch a moonshot and have it fizzle. And so that's a critical, critical piece to making it successful. So as you know, I've studied visionaries for a couple years to figure out what makes them tick as compared to the rest of us. And one of the most important things I learned is that visionaries have an innate capacity to actually step into the future and kind of test drive themselves in the future as if it's happening in the present. So they envision the future in a really visceral way. They imagine themselves in future scenarios and future settings. They imagine their products as if they're working, even when they're they're little uh, pieces of carved wood. Um, So what they do is they, they put themselves in the future and they have their entire body and physiology experience it as if it's happening in in reality. And what happens to visionaries when they do that is that they suddenly see what's possible from that place and they see how things are operating from that place so that going back to the present becomes intolerable because they're so drawn by the possibility and potential and the reality of the future and they're frustrated by the limitations and the uh, flatness of the present. So rather than having to motivate themselves by, you know, pushing themselves or exerting discipline to move forward, they are motivated by being pulled toward a future reality that's so tantalizing and so compelling that they can barely stand the present. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So that's a technique that I strongly recommend anybody learn to use. Um, really, this, this technique of stepping into and having a, an experience of the future and making it as visceral as you can. What are you smelling? What are you hearing? You know, who's coming to dinner? Um, what events are you uh, participating in? What awards have you won? Um, what's that uh, news article about your uh, business or your moonshot that's in on the front cover of, of uh, a, a major magazine? So those are the types of things that help create reality around the future that can be a magnet for you to move from the present into the future. And then the rest falls into place because that becomes your top priority and you figure out how to navigate and how to manage the day-to-day um, in, as a as a way to support it within the context of your commitment to your vision. Yeah, we often couple this with something that's rather practical and that we have uh, 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 an outline in our book regarding, and that is making it public and having a board. So it's not very powerful to think of things in your head. They live mostly in the sort of magic kingdom of wishes. And uh, the thing that really helps you is to share it with other people who can help hold you accountable. And that's often, as in the example with the guys doing the triathlon, these people all knew about it with each other. So they would challenge each other to times. They set up a website where, where they would share their training schedules and their personal bests daily or weekly. Uh, we advocate also that if you're a sole practitioner, practitioner, leader of a team or a group or a CEO, that you form some kind of board. For some people, that's a real board, you know, uh, a board of directors that's formalized. And for some people, it's a board that you cause to happen and call into play, three or four people who you choose and provide a structure of meeting from time to time, once a month or more often if you need it. Uh, And you have conversations where you make commitments and keep revisiting the vision with them. So it causes you to step outside of the day-to-day and return to uh, the vision that you have by design. Yeah, I love the quote you have here from Zig Ziglar. People often say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it daily. I love that. <laughs> yeah. One. Yes. Yeah. Okay, now here's a question, especially in this, you know, again, I'm I'm leaning a little bit to the entrepreneurial side of things and this whole idea of the lean startup and being able to pivot quickly and what happens when you've pivoted so much that like your moonshot looks completely different than it did when you first started? Is that possible? Is that something you don't recommend? You know, um, because of the compressed timeline, we generally recommend, actually we've seen almost all the moonshots we've worked on, they don't do dramatic pivots in the first in- incarnation. They may do oh. it afterwards, but it's pretty important to have a goal that you may modify slightly, but the general premise and intention remains intact, right? Because you galvanize a lot of momentum around an intention and a basic set of guiding principles and assumptions. 
So uh, I guess I would I would say that uh, you know as long as you're not violating the core tenet of your moonshot, if it takes a slightly different form or incarnation, that's fine. Um, but but generally, I think you want to build momentum around something that you maintain. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Chantal, you're bringing up something uh, important, which is the moonshot effect, the book and the. Um, the formulas we describe in there, the things we recommend, are not a substitute for long-term planning. This is not for three-year projects. This is for galvanizing, getting into action, creating urgency, and uh, producing something inside your company that you haven't been able to produce before in a very compressed time frame with concentrated effort. So it's very, it's different than uh, for instance, some of the normal project planning that's out there that's more um, more conducive to very long-term strategies. Got it. And I guess that's hard for me to wrap my head around because some of these examples you're giving are huge. I mean, like, people are accomplishing amazing things. And just to remind myself that these are done in small, short, compressed timelines, that's, you know, important. And it just it illustrates the power of this. And it may be, Chantal, that, the, that what you deliver in nine months is a first phase or a first component of the overall thing. And then you launch another moonshot to do the next phase. So yeah. that, that's a possibility, too, and we've seen that happen um, with many of our, the people we work with. So something yeah. gets launched and it gets modified or pivoted, and it may or may not warrant a full concentrated moonshot effort. You may be able to just put it into the normal process then. Yeah, but the idea is to see this sucker through, you know, even if in the face of the challenges, even in the face of the naysayers or the doubters or your own self-doubt, see it through, keep the pressure on, keep the vision going, and then reevaluate after. Yeah, and, and in, the, in the spirit of vulnerability, I just want to share something. Uh, the moonshot I launched at SanDisk was a 10-month project, and it was... Uh, Actually, everybody told us it wasn't possible, that we could never do it. I mean, I heard that from the vendors we hired. I heard it from the consultants we hired. I heard it from my peers on the executive team. And I just had to stand firm in my commitment to deliver. And I will tell you that I was afraid. I, every day I thought, either we're going to deliver this or I'm going to get fired. And that happened every single day. I lived in fear of not delivering and being fired, but nobody else knew that. That was my own private, uh, you know, um, conversation that was going on. And I will never forget the day I saw it work for the first time technologically, that it was a complex uh, technology that we implemented. It was about two months before it was supposed to launch. I, I unexpectedly and uncharacteristically broke into tears in the middle of my business meeting. And the reason was because I was so overwhelmed with pride and relief that we were actually going to pull this thing off. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I will tell you, it's not for the faint of heart, but that moment was actually one of the most powerful moments of my career. And it, it will never, I will never forget that moment. Yeah. Let's talk about, since we're in this sort of power success part, you actually bring up physical stances like you know sourcing power from the body I thought that was very interesting and feminine because we tend to do a lot of sourcing from the body and the feminine model of leadership so I'm curious to hear more about that 
Yeah, well, that's even based on research um, Research done at Stanford. Amy Cuddy's done some of the research, um, Deborah Grunewald at Stanford, and it's really uh, based on studying power and that there is that physiology and the power comes from not just from your head, it comes from your body, and those stances send signals to your brain that are different than uh, when you're standing in another stance. Um, it's like when you have a smile on your face, there's, there's stuff happening in, in your neurology and in your brain that's signaling that you're happy, whether or not you're happy. So uh, that, that's what we've mentioned in the book, is, is actually learning and um, taking advantage of neurology to work in your favor. Because confidence is a big issue for many of the, both men and women executives we work with. That's one of the big challenges, is when you take a big risk, a big visible risk like this, one of the things that the byproduct is uh, fear that you'll fail. And so that's one way to sort of combat or counterbalance that, that fear. Yeah, another thing in addition to sort of the physicality of it and its relationship to the brain for uh, power and empower, self-empowerment is also language. So uh, one of the things that we have found and uh, believe it to be so important that we uh, really called it out in the book is, that, is there are a lot of words that just plain, you can stop using them today. And, yeah. and you, you will be much better off. So, uh, and in particular, I work with a lot of women and women entrepreneurs, women who are uh, uh, also, um, you know, wanting to really kickstart their careers. And here's what I have found is a lot of their language, they're just shooting themselves in the foot. So I'm going to give you a couple of for instances. The word but, the word just, women use this so often, and it lets the air out of the bag. If you're, if you're going to give a preamble to what you're talking about and say, well, I just want to say, it negates everything else you're, you're delivering. So... Uh, you can eliminate that from your vocabulary. Should is another one. So there are a number of words that definitely don't accrue confidence to yourself. They don't send a message to your own brain, let alone to the brain of the listener. And I think that for the most part are invisible to us. And small changes can make huge effects. And that's one of the things in the moonshot as well. Small concentrated changes have huge effects. So I'm I'm glad that you noticed that many of these moonshots cre have have um, created huge um, results in the world. Yeah, I love that you're bringing up the communication piece too, because it seems like you're the whole idea of simplicity in these moonshots, compressed timelines, simplicity of communication as to like what it is, but also. As you're executing, keeping regular and intentional communication, how you're speaking is very important. And you have a formula here for running a meeting, which I thought was very handy. Do you want to <laughs> go over that? Because that was uh, very handy for me, someone who has a lot of meetings. I'm already reframing a lot of what I do now. So, You know, there's something, Chantal, I'm just going to throw out there, that one of the most powerful chapters in the book is on acknowledgement. Speaking of yeah. communication, yeah. and I just I just want to give an example here of, of the different levels of acknowledgement. 
um, because it really matters and it really impacts people and it really elevates their performance when they're acknowledged. So uh, I can give you the nice high level of acknowledgement, which is, you know, I, I love the questions you're asking, Chantel, right? That's sort of the basic level. And then I could do the next level, which is actually what kind of um, impact that had on me. You know, Chantel, I love the questions you're asking because they're inspiring me to think about how I interact with people in general when I'm meeting new people and what kind of questions I ask. Um, and so thank you for that. And then uh, the third level is actually talking about what it does outside of there. You know, that, that I, I love the questions you're asking and, and how you're positioning things because not only am I going to integrate that into how I do things, but I can see how this can transform the way that we communicate in our marketing materials as we're going out into the world to, to, to make sure that we're integrating a lot of this questioning and exploration, um, curiosity spirit that you're developing. And that's going to make a huge impact on our business. So it's the, those things, being aware of acknowledging and intentionally acknowledging people, not just at the nice high level, but the wow, you're rocking the world level, that makes a huge difference and it's critically important. Yeah, I love that you're bringing up the communication piece. Again, you also have something in here about resonance and mirroring your body and adjusting to people that you're talking to. And once again, when we're doing a moonshot, there's a lot, uh, there's going to be objections, which are good. We want object, you know, we want to hear people's feedback, but then sometimes we need to manage those, right? So you have an idea here where you're um, wanting to create resonance, and I would love to hear what you mean by that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the, you know, I'll, I'll say at the risk of revealing something that I hope doesn't get too far out in the world. Uh, there, <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. That, uh, there are so many things in the book that although we didn't write this book for women, there are so many things in the book that are actually much better done by women than by, than by men. They're, they're natural at this. And if we can codify it so, so women can see themselves doing it, so much the better. And this is exactly one of those things. So women are much better at this than men and uh, doing it in a uh, powerful way gives them an advantage. Let's just, you know, let's just say that, draw that line in the sand. So uh, I think what there is to do in communicating with people is stop your propensity and your knee-jerk reaction to respond and answer. Because the first thing to do is to understand what people are saying. People want to be understood. They want to be heard. And so the first rule, the first order of business is make sure you understood what they said. Say back to them, here's what I, I heard. Can you validate, is that correct? So a couple of things happen. One is the person actually gets the experience of being heard. Secondly, when you ask them, can you validate, is that correct? They say the word yes, and something happens. As I mentioned before, when we say certain words, Something happens to the brain when you say yes. So when you cause the other person to say yes for any reason whatsoever, your 
you've just taken the first step towards selling them an idea. And that's very, very critical. It's something that, um, you know, I think women have uh, in their repertoire if they knew, know how to use that tool in their toolbox when and where. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a, uh, an example of the way you can have people resonate with you and become collaborators and partners rather than people who sit on the other side of the table. Uh-huh. Yeah. And once again, there's the example you have, emphasis on the body language as well, using the body to turn and mirror the stance that the other person that you're trying to create resonance with. I thought that was cool. Yeah, and you know, Sandal, that actually all operates on a completely unconscious and very primitive level. Uh, our brains are constantly scanning for are we with like kind or not, like an antelope would on the on the uh, savanna looking for prey, right? And so, and your entire system relaxes when you get the feeling of being with like kind, and that's what using their their words, uh, repeating back words they're using, and kind of mirroring your body language and your tone of voice and your volume of voice and all of that. That's what it does. It's, just, it's like this soothing message so their critter brain doesn't have to be on high alert. And that's why, that's that feeling of resonance. That's that feeling of, you know, when you do this expertly, people are really good at this. They often have people say to them, I, I swear I know you from somewhere. Or, you know, I feel like I've known you forever. And it's really just that. It's this soothing of the... Uh, the part of your brain that's looking for danger. Yeah, we're, uh, both Kate and I have the experience often of uh, in first conversations with uh, people who run businesses that I'll speak for myself that I know nothing about, very complex technologies. I couldn't even begin to understand what they do. Uh, at the end of speaking with them for half an hour or 45 minutes, they say or say to colleagues, I've never spoken with somebody who got our business so quickly. Uh-huh. And I didn't get anything. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's the real power of allowing people to, to experience themselves being heard. Uh, you know, if, if um, we're going to talk more about this kind of resonance and physicality, uh, and another thing that really is um, a great thing to do is if you happen to meet somebody in their office or in their place of work or, or go to their home, uh, if you happen to be somebody who, uh, you know, anything as, as simple as a yoga teacher at someone's home or a, a massage therapist, is the first thing to do before you get down to the order of business is look at the environment and mention things. Walk up to them, face them full on like a family photo, and make a remark. And this gives people the experience that you care and that they have shown up on your radar. Yeah. It's just a gateway to understanding. Yeah. I love that. I love, I, you know, I notice when people do it to me and maybe this is something that the feminine feels more comfortable in because it's so relational, but I, f I feel compelled to do that. I always feel like that's first and the business is second in a way, our human connection. Yeah, I think it's great that you um, say that and notice that about yourself. You know, I, I'll also say the secret uh, of 
what Kate and I have to say is we didn't invent anything that we've written about. We just are great noticers and we're great codifiers uh-huh. and we're great translators uh, so that other people can see and use. Uh, we didn't invent anything. So the, the, we're um, hoping that as people read the book, they notice times when they have done those things as well. Mm-hmm. The purpose of noticing times when you've done those things as well is that you can now do it purposely rather than by uh, happenstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One more question here. I love the, and you alluded to it earlier, uh, about being a hero. And your chapter, towards the end of the book, you have uh, a whole section on be a hero maker, not a hero. And this is also important in terms of emerging women because we're raising ourselves up, but we're also reaching a hand down and getting as many women into the leadership pipeline as possible so that we can um, have exponential growth in women's leadership across the globe. So tell us more about this concept because I love it. You know, it's interesting. One of our um, clients, and or Lisa's clients, and one of the people quoted in the book said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I'm the CEO. I don't need recognition. I can give it all away to my people because I've already gotten there, and I get so much more value by giving acknowledgement and recognition to the people around me than I could ever possibly get by, um, you know, tooting my own horn or claiming um, responsibility and ownership over results myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's very much true, that you'll notice that uh, actually that some of the greatest leaders in the world don't talk about their accomplishments. They know that their accomplishments stand for themselves and they uh, are systematically brilliant at revealing and uh, shining a light on the those around them that make them make these things happen. Um, so, and I am also Chantal, as you very well know, uh, an, an extremely strong advocate of uh, paving the ground for and making it easier for those who follow us to follow in our in our footsteps and leverage those so that the friction of going up up the chain and up the ladder and climbing up is is reduced because uh, it is critical to get as many women as possible in positions of power and authority in the world. And so that is, uh, I think, a responsibility and an opportunity that all of us have. Yeah, Chantal, also, uh, you know, some of the things that Kate was describing often looks to people, and we hear this word, uh, looks to people like humility. And I think when people think of applying humility to themselves, it feels like, they're suppressing something. In order to be humble, I have to stop, uh, I don't know, whatever that is, calling attention to myself or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I have to suppress something in myself. So this concept of being a hero maker is powerful because it gives somebody something to do rather than to not do. And uh, it requires, what it requires is courage rather than humility. And so the kind of courage it requires is being willing to sit with someone, look at them, and say, I think you're a hero. Let's make that obvious to the outside world. You have to, you have to say it. You have to say it so people can see it. Mm-hmm. 
beautiful. Well, thank you both so much. I'm so excited to get this work out into the world. I think it's really important work and it's comprehensive. I mean, on one hand, it's a step-by-step how to launch a moon shop. And on the other hand, it's a great leadership guide. So I appreciate the alchemy that you've created here. I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much, Antal. It's a real pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. It was a real for us. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.